Welcome back to Single Minded, where we are flipping the script on being single. I am your host, Hannah First. And I'm your co-host, Linda. So I just want to give the listeners some background into this episode. So a few months ago, I wrote a fashion journal article titled, I'm considering freezing my eggs because I'm 31 and have no idea if I want children. I'm 32 now. So it was yes. a while last ago. year. It actually got a huge response from my followers and they then sent in their stories and their feelings on having kids. So I actually have a highlights on my Instagram stories called kids question mark. And I really encourage you to go read them because it made me feel a lot less alone in my feelings because there's a lot of women out there that feel the same. As a result of that, I put a question box wanting to know what were people's questions about egg freezing and their fertility. I got a lot of questions back and I reached out to Dr. Raylia Lu because I wanted her to come on the podcast. I'd interviewed her previously for another episode on Beauty IQ and I had actually at this point saved up for the egg freezing procedure because it wasn't really a question of if, but when. I was just like, I'll do it next year, I'll do it next year, mm. I'll do it next year and I just kept putting it off. But I did have the money saved up to do it. It's around, I thought it would be around $10,000. Rayleigh and I got chatting and Women's Health Melbourne actually kindly offered to sponsor my egg freezing journey. Rayleigh is the director of Women's Health Melbourne. And so as part of that collaboration, I'm actually going to share my entire egg freezing journey. So I do have that money saved up, but that's going to go towards moving to Thailand. <laughs> I thought it would be really helpful for any women out there, married, single or other, who aren't sure what they want to do, don't know if they want to have kids, don't know if they should freeze their eggs. So I'm going to share my experiences so you kind of know exactly what's involved. I had absolutely no idea about egg freezing, didn't even cross my mind. So when we went to Women's Health Melbourne, when was that? So long ago. Yeah, a couple of months ago. I had some weird questions. So I thought when they took the eggs from you that they were removing your good eggs that are inside your body waiting to be naturally (sighs) fertilised. But I have since learnt that each cycle you've got, say, 20 follicles that are activated. So they're just making use of eggs that you would lose anyway in that cycle. So that was a relief. Yeah. And then I was told that men produce fresh sperm every day and of course their sperm supply gets replenished at least every 64 days so they've got a very different um, journey and I guess I wasn't sure if it was 69 days that would have been (laughs) no 64 (laughs) bad luck and I wasn't sure if egg freezing was really necessary for you at 32 but I have listened to a couple of women who are going through the process because now it's top of my mind and they're both late 30s, and I realise it's actually pretty important to do it now, not later. Yeah. Well, I did want to actually share a couple of Instagram stories that people had sent in just to give you a bit of a flavour for what will be on those stories. So this is one girl sent in, I'm 36 this year. I've solo travelled my way across the globe on and off for the last 15 years loved in some amazing countries and I've been single for the better part of six years. Kids had never crossed my mind, but as my July birthday seems to be rapidly approaching, I'm thinking, should I freeze them just in case? But then I've never stopped to think about having kids. Truthfully, it doesn't enter my mind until someone else brings it up. But what if? There's a tiny piece of my brain that says, you might meet the one, how bloody corny, but what if it's too late to have one? Would I feel I missed out 
Or would I keep living my life of expensive handbags, hostels, music festivals, and international travel? I just read that and I was like, is that me? Like, it really (laughs) sounds like me. Here's another one. I waited until I was 36 to freeze my eggs and it didn't go as well as I'd hoped. I Mm. wish I'd done it when I was younger. I'm now 39 and honestly, your episode on sperm donors has me seriously considering going ahead with single parenthood. My main hesitation is I don't have family nearby and how could I afford childcare. Mm. And then there's another one. So when I was 32, I found out I had low egg count and was advised to freeze some eggs for the future if I wanted kids. The problem is, while I always assumed I'd eventually have kids, I just wasn't sure if I wanted them enough to put myself physically and financially through the process. I thought on it for such a long time, unable to make a decision. And in the end, by not making a decision, I unconsciously did make one to not proceed. I'm now 39 and at times doubt myself. Anyway, that Mm. one's quite long, but they're just really interesting what some of the women sent in. And it's like, it's not just you're a woman in your 30s, you must want kids. Like there's just a lot of women out there that are just really not sure and it was just so amazing to hear what they all had to say. It's a plan B. Yes, it is. And I think you said to me, Mum, just freeze them and then make a decision later. That was your advice. (laughs) Part one, which is today's episode, Rayleigh will be answering listener questions on fertility and egg freezing. And part two, which will be coming out later, will be an audio diary of the actual procedure, as well as deep diving into my reasons for getting my eggs frozen. You'll also be able to follow the journey on my Instagram at Hannah First. This is a really personal decision, so I'd recommend anyone thinking about getting their eggs frozen to speak to their GP first. So let's get into my interview with Raylia. So very excited to welcome Dr. Raylia Lou today from Women's Health Melbourne. And Dr. Raylia Lou is a fertility specialist, but instead of me telling everyone about you, I would love for you to tell the listeners what you do and what your specialty is. Oh, thanks for having me, Hannah. I am a doctor and I specialised in obstetrics and gynaecology initially, uh, which is really ladies and babies. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to subspecialise in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And I sought the highest qualification in that area, which is called the CREI, which Mm -hmm. is not essential for a doctor to have to practice in the fertility zone, but it is considered the elite qualification that a fertility specialist requires to be a head of unit or to really kind of have great expertise in every area of fertility, including male and female infertility, as we don't get any of that training in our general OBS and gynae specialty training. Mm. So I did three years on top of that to gain that qualification. And so is what you do now mostly to do with fertility? That's right. So I call myself a retired obstetrician, tongue in cheek, because yeah. <laughs> I'm only 41, but I'm a retired obstetrician. <laughs> I'd love to get started on some of the questions. Now, these questions were sent in by some of my followers on Instagram when I shared some stories that women had shared with me about their, I guess, fertility journey, but also about their decision to have kids or not have kids. So how does our fertility change as we get older? So it's complicated because it's Mm -hmm. multidimensional. So in terms of egg quality, potential to make a baby, certainly that deteriorates quite rapidly as we get older. We start off with all the eggs we're ever going to have. 
And for most women, we don't run out of eggs before our fertility starts to decline. Our mm-hmm. fertility is more about our age than our egg number. So sometimes women can be falsely reassured when they have a high ovarian reserve reading and may not understand that egg quality trumps quantity every time. We make all the eggs we're ever going to make before we're born and we don't replenish them. So they have to last the distance and they've got a shelf life. Mm. So when you're under 30, most eggs are capable of making a normal embryo. As you age beyond 35, it goes from being the majority of eggs that can do that to the minority that can. Mm -hmm. So it becomes harder and harder for women and couples to get pregnant often when they try later in life. But fertility is not just about eggs. It's also about the female body. And as we get older, we tend to acquire different pathologies in all aspects of medicine and fertility is no different. So conditions that we may not have been born with can develop that can impact our fertility. So we're talking about things like fibroids of the uterus, which are benign tumors that can distort the uterus or endometriosis, which is a really Mm. common condition affecting one in 10 women that can progress and become a problem when it wasn't before. And other conditions like, for example, a condition called adenomyosis, which is a more diffuse change in the muscle texture of the uterus that can be impactful on fertility can happen gradually as we get older. So that's just some examples of some different conditions that can be more prevalent or more common as women do get a bit older. Mm. And then there's the whole category of being pregnant at an older age and the fact that the older we are when we get pregnant, the more likely we are to suffer certain complications of pregnancy. So, for example, it would be unheard of to most listeners for a 25-year-old to have a heart attack because they were pregnant. Mm. But that wouldn't be unheard of at all in someone over 50 attempting a pregnancy. So there are certain things like, for example, blood pressure problems, a tendency to develop gestational diabetes of pregnancy that Mm. do become significantly more common as a woman ages and it's certainly much more common over the age of 35. And it may be quite surprising to some when they hear that from an obstetric point of view, someone aged over 35 is considered of advanced maternal age. That's the definition. Mm. We call women over 35 advanced maternal age, not normal maternal age, whereas many women are actually having babies over 35 all the time. So it's it's one of those situations where our habits and our tendencies have changed, but our biology still remains the same. Mm. I think when I came to see you, the thing that I had no idea about was I thought you ran out of eggs. I had no idea that it was because it's the quality of the eggs, not the number of eggs that you have. I had no idea that that was the issue because you do hear a lot about women having babies in their 40s or their late 30s. But do you think as you get older, like those stories that you hear, it is less likely though as you get into your late 30s and 40s. Put it like this, as a fertility doctor, I see hardly any patients in their 20s, hardly any Mm, struggling to have a baby. Of course, I see some. I see patients Mm -hmm. who might carry genetic problems that they want to screen 
out in embryos. Uh, endometriosis is a common condition that can happen to young women. But mm -hmm. I see hardly any patients when they're trying in their 20s, whereas I see huge numbers in their late 30s, early 40s. So the chance of having problems is amplified as we get older. And of course, there will be people who don't struggle in those age groups too, but the proportion of people who struggle mm. are significantly overrepresented in those age groups. Yeah. Today, I really wanted to talk about egg freezing. And this is the question that probably came up the most was what age is ideal to do egg freezing? And is there an age where you no longer recommend it? Sure. There's perfect and then there's good. <sighs> okay. So in an ideal world, you want to freeze young, healthy eggs that have great pregnancy potential. So mm -hmm. what goes into the freezer is what comes out of the freezer. Yeah. And that is ideal. And in an ideal world, we'd love to see women come in their mid-20s to early 30s to freeze eggs so that what goes into the freezer is terrific. You said that it's the eggs that are frozen, it's those quality eggs that then come out. Is that correct? That's right. So let's yeah. just say you're 30 and you freeze eggs and you come back to use those eggs when you're 40. I wouldn't be quoting you embryo statistics of success of mm. a 40-year-old. I'd be quoting you success rates of a 30-year-old because yeah. the eggs intrinsically while they're in the freezer are unchanged and they're metabolically arrested. So from the egg's point of view, it's like they went to sleep the day they went mm. into the freezer and they woke up Amazing. the day they came out. So that's what's <laughs> brilliant about this technology. Mm. In terms of real world stuff, I think women freeze eggs when they think about it. And I think, and I hope women are thinking about it a little bit earlier now as the technology becomes more tried and true and less experimental, because it mm -hmm. is quite a new technology still. It was only first deemed non-experimental in 2012. Whereas the wow. first IVF baby was, you know, kind of late 70s. So mm. egg freezing in the history of IVF is relatively new still. And so, you know, we've now got lots of babies born from frozen eggs. But as those early adopters froze eggs, we were still watching to check on safety and making sure that babies born from frozen eggs were normal, which they are. Um, and we've mm -hmm. been really reassured. In fact, outcomes in the data from around the world are more reassuring for babies born of frozen eggs than they are for IVF babies in general, which as a mm -hmm. doctor who does a lot of IVF, I find extremely interesting because what that tells me is that it's not the technique of IVF that shows some outcomes that we see. So for example, we see that IVF babies have a very slightly increased risk of congenital abnormalities compared to naturally conceived babies. And that's been demonstrated in huge studies across the world. We don't see that in babies born of egg freezing. So what mm. that is telling us is that probably those problems are intrinsic, not to the IVF process, but to the couples that are seeking IVF for reasons of mm. infertility. Yeah. So we're learning actually a lot all the time in IVF. It's a fascinating science, mm. but the oldest IVF baby in the whole wide world is in their early 40s to this day. So we still won't have data for a long time about, you know, kind of how IVF babies age compared to babies born naturally. So far, we've found that there's been no differences of a detrimental nature in any pathology. So we think mm -hmm. there probably won't be, but time will tell. 
And you mentioned that the ideal age would be sort of mid-20s to early 30s. Up to what sort of age in your 30s would you could you still seek egg freezing and there would still be a good result? So again, I guess it depends on what we call a good result. As women get yep. older, we have two problems that are separate but happen in parallel. So one problem is our egg count diminishes. And so the number of eggs you can get in a cycle relative to your younger self goes down significantly year by year. And then on top of that, the quality per egg and the chance of an egg making a mistake, the eggs deteriorate as we get older. So we get fewer eggs and poorer quality eggs the older we are when we freeze eggs. So statistically speaking, your chance of having a baby from an egg frozen, you know, over the age of 40 is not terrific. And I do tend to counsel women when they come to see me in their very late 30s and early 40s about other options such as whether they would consider trying to have a baby now using mm. donor sperm, for example, if they're not in a relationship. It's very fair if somebody doesn't want to do that. It's not my place as a fertility doctor to talk them into it if it's not on their radar and something they don't want to do. And I certainly have supported women freezing eggs in their 40s if that's what mm -hmm. they want to do. I think the most important thing is realistic counselling. And I always discuss IVF outcomes with women who want to freeze eggs relative to the age they are because I think that's really important because yeah. when you do freeze eggs, particularly in your early 40s, you're not going to do better than if you were trying IVF with your own eggs at that age. And we have that data to explain to women. So mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, the absolute oldest person at their age when I froze eggs for them has been 43. Mm -hmm. And yep. I think that's because when I do counsel women realistically, they might decide not to do it a lot of the time. If they are, you know, in the years over 40, they either decide to do something else or they might decide that if they want to have a baby, they might go about it in a, another way in the yep. future rather than freezing eggs for themselves at that time. But some will want to do it and will be motivated and will know the risks and will want to do it because they want to guard against decisional regret and have that opportunity yep. in the future as if they were trying at that time. I guess you've sort of touched on this, but what other fertility options are there once you get to a stage where you may not recommend egg freezing or you, you know, at that age, um, are there any other options for women? It's not the age of the woman per se. It's the age yep. of the egg that determines embryo viability. Mm -hmm. So a woman can use a donor egg if she wants to carry a baby beyond the years when her own eggs will yield a healthy embryo. Mm -hmm. And many women do choose to do that. It's still not widely spoken about, I think, in Australia, even amongst women who've made that choice. I think there's yep. still a bit of taboo. It's not accepted widely. And I think there's still a lot of stigma. But many women who do have babies in their 40s are using a donor egg. Mm -hmm. So when other women see many women having babies in their 40s, it's important, I suppose, yeah. to highlight that because mm. otherwise women can have unrealistic expectations of what's possible. But I think it's a bit of a dual dilemma because we don't talk about egg donation. Mm. One of the reasons is also that it is so hard to get a donor egg. So it's, it's kind of pigeonholed as this impossible situation. 
And many women prior to COVID used to fly internationally to other jurisdictions where it was legal to pay a donor to donate eggs anonymously in an overseas clinic. That's Mm -hmm. actually really difficult right now, but it was so popular and so common up until just recently. And um, that really highlights the fact that our legislation in Victoria and in Australia, which is well-meaning, is really restrictive and it makes it difficult for women to find a donor egg here. And that feeds into that cycle of stigma Mm -hmm. that it's so difficult to overcome. In Australia, to have a donor egg, it has to be altruistic. So it has to be not paid for by the woman or couple. And it also has to be on the register and non-anonymous. And those two things, whether it's a popular viewpoint or not, are barriers to egg donation. Mm. Because going through an egg collection, while you would do it for yourself, you might not want to do it for a stranger for no compensation. Mm. And in countries where you can do it without ever fearing a knock on the door in the future, and when you can do it for some financial benefit, there are no shortage of egg donors. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's the same here with sperm donation, isn't it, as well? It is, and that also does limit the number of sperm donors, yep. mainly because they can't be, you know, kind of, you know, coerced into doing it with any great mm. financial incentive. I think there's a lot of altruistic people, and I think the altruism is there, but it's just it's quite a big deal to be self-motivated to go and have counselling and even though the process of sperm donation physically is not anywhere near as difficult as the process mm. of egg donation, still the the counselling and the the fact that you go on the register, uh, it can mm. be confronting to men as well. So it, it is it is a problem, whereas I think if there was some degree of financial compensation, that might be the carrot <laughs> to get more sperm donors. I did speak to a woman that had had, um, she was 38 and I think she had, gone to a fertility specialist and they had recommended if you're looking to do it, you should do it now. And yeah, she said the same thing that there's not that many sperm donors. I think it's even worse now because of COVID because what happened all of last year is that non-essential activities were dampened down. Mm. And a lot of the places where sperm donors are to some degree, I guess, recruited. So things like festivals and you know, arts events where there might be some kind of advertising to attract altruistic donors, those events didn't happen. Mm. And so the communication didn't happen. Mm. And um, at the same time, I think also because of lockdowns and not meeting people necessarily, maybe impairing ability to date people and meet new people for singles, more women have wanted to use donor sperm. Mm -hmm. So there's been higher demand and that has been in context of mm, less no supply recruitment. So I think we're across Australia in every unit at an all-time low in terms of the sperm donor availability, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, everybody's putting their head together to think about how to turn the tide on that one. And there's mm. lots of creative solutions, including the idea of bringing sperm from overseas and also creative ways to recruit altruistic sperm donors. Mm. How interesting. 
Now on to egg freezing and in terms of checking your fertility before you might decide to freeze your eggs. I think a question that's come up with my friends is like, I guess they they have no idea about their own fertility. Is there a way that you can kind of get a sense of that before you make the decision to have your eggs frozen? Yes and no. So fertility is more complicated than numbers on paper. There are certain elements that we look for. So we look at ovarian reserve, which is not a marker of fertility at all. You can have a low egg count and be extremely fertile, and you can have a very high egg count and not be particularly fertile. So that tells us more about how your doctor can manipulate your ovary to your advantage in the context of IVF or egg freezing treatment than it does your fertility per se. Mm -hmm. But we can do imaging investigations of the pelvis to look at pelvic anatomy and normal anatomy, while not essentially predictive of normal fertility, is very reassuring. A pregnancy history is reassuring. If anyone has had an unwanted pregnancy in the past, that's probably an indication that at that time they had good fertility. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I guess, something we elicit on history. It's important to also understand that fertility is not a one-sided thing. You can have a perfectly fertile woman and she may struggle in the context of a couple with an infertile man. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to predict the future in that context if you're single because 50% of the equation for fertility as a couple may be missing. Mm -hmm. I think the best thing to do is to create an idea of what you want in your mind and then have a think about, well, what can I do to make that come true? And think of egg freezing as more of a resource that you create for your future self should you need it. Mm -hmm. And when you create that resource, the best thing is to create a strong resource. The younger you freeze your eggs, the fewer times you need to do that in terms of cycles to create a really good resource. So it's quite normal for women who are particularly you know, around 30 and under 35 to be able to do one cycle and get a good result where their Mm -hmm. doctor might say, you probably don't need to do another cycle right now. Whereas for most women over 35, two cycles would be par for the course, unless they have an exceptional ovarian reserve. um, I would say that would be the expected number of cycles to create a strong resource. And with the ovarian reserve, is that what the AMH test tests for? Yeah. So AMH is like a chemical marker of the ovarian reserve. It's a, it's a hormone actually. Sometimes mm-hmm. women make the mistake of thinking it's the number of eggs they have, mm. the digit or two digit result, or sometimes three digit result they get for their AMH, but it isn't. It's, it's the hormone made by the ovary measured in picomoles per liter in the blood. And the more AMH you make as a rule of thumb, the bigger and stronger and more rich in follicles your ovary is. Mm -hmm. So it tells us a bit about the ovary. It doesn't correlate directly to the number of eggs available in a a cycle. It just gives us an idea of where your ovary is on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And another marker of ovarian reserve, which is very useful, is something called the antral follicle assessment or antral follicle count which is a count of the little egg sacs that we can see on the ovary at rest at the beginning of a menstrual cycle. And that tells us an equally important, in fact, probably a superior estimate of how a woman might go in an egg freeze context. In terms of the 
egg freezing process, what is sort of the process from from someone that goes to their GP to get a referral right until they've got the eggs frozen? So often there's a big gap from when a woman starts thinking about egg freezing to when she actually gets that GP referral. But Mm -hmm. the process from that point would be making a time to meet with a specialist. And when you meet with a specialist, they'll generally talk to you about the process of egg freezing and should you wish, get you ready to do it. And that involves documenting consent for the process, so explaining what's involved. And you often will see a nurse and potentially um, have some financial consent about the process. For most women, freezing eggs is not Medicare eligible. There are a few exceptions to that rule. Like, for example, if you are doing it in an emergency because you have a cancer diagnosis, it would be Medicare eligible. Or if you have a condition that is a huge threat to your fertility, that is evident and obvious, like severe endometriosis, uh, then that would also be potentially Medicare eligible for fertility preservation. For most women who freeze eggs, it's elective, which means that a woman does it for herself to create a resource for her future self without any threatening medical conditions underlying that. And so it's important to discuss financial consent. It's usually an investment of somewhere between seven and $10,000 for a cycle for a woman out of pocket. These days, more down towards the lower than the upper end of that estimate. But mm-hmm. the reason that it's variable is that the medications that we choose will vary person to person and the doses will be different person to person. And the medications alone are roughly about $2,500 out of pocket mm. without having a doctor or a hospital or a lab or any kind of monitoring nurses and reviews. And so just the meds, it's an expensive process. So that's part of it, considering all of those elements. The actual Mm -hmm. process of egg freezing is relatively quick. I think of the backbone of an egg freeze cycle is your natural menstrual cycle. So the natural menstrual cycle for most women is about a month in length and you ovulate about mid-cycle. So when you think about it, takes roughly two weeks to ripen an egg. And what we do with egg freezing is we, instead of trying to ripen just the one egg that the body would ripen that month, we try and recruit the runners up in that cycle and we try and recruit them at the time when the body's having that innate competition to choose the one egg in a natural cycle. So we tend to start medicines roughly uh, after your period has started by a day or two, so while you're still bleeding. And we kind of mess with that recruitment process to try and get all of the runners up that were trying to, but were destined in a natural cycle not to be the winner of the race, to get them to run the race as well. So we recruit the second best egg and the third best egg and the fourth best egg, et cetera. And the number of eggs that you have lining up at the starting line is going to vary person to person. And that's kind of what we're estimating with ovarian reserve. So there might be one woman who has an absolutely terrific ovary that's got lots and lots of eggs and she might with the same medication protocol get three or four times what someone who's demographically identical but has a smaller ovary can do. So as an IVF specialist my job is to figure out what you can do and then get the best out of your intrinsic potential. Mm. So that's what I do when I think about the recipes I write to freeze eggs. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of the medication. Exactly. And there's many different ways to do that. It's not like a one-size-fits-all situation. Mm. How long between, I guess, the period and taking the medication to the actual procedure? It's generally about two weeks, but the actual day will vary. And the reason that it varies, it might not vary too much if you're in a protocolized unit where you're running the same kind of thing in a more generic protocolized sense. But the way I run my cycles for my patients is individualizing care. And I make my decisions about when I'm going to go to egg collection for each patient based on their ultrasound monitoring. So when they first start taking medication, it's usually about 10 to 14 days that you'll be using medication on average. It's rarely shorter than 10 days. But what's happening during that time is we're doing ultrasounds to monitor how things are going. And when I watch on the ultrasounds, what I'm looking for is seeing how those eggs are ripening and are they in sync or are they not in sync and making a judgment call as to when to go to egg collection based on what's best for the majority of follicles. So sometimes there are follicles that are racing out ahead, but there are more follicles behind them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's worth pushing a cycle out a little bit longer before we go to egg collection so we can mature the eggs that were younger at the start of the cycle and just strategically try and maximize the number of eggs available for collection that are going to be mature, frozen and usable in the future. Mm. So we make that decision on a one person by person basis. So I'm really interested to know about the actual process of egg raising, like what actually happens in the operating theater. Can you kind of take us through that? So that's actually a really gentle and precise and delicate. It's 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 not like a kind of, you know, orthopedic surgeon type procedure. Basically what I do The patient comes in to theatre and there's quite a few people involved in the theatre. So sometimes it's a bit surprising how many people are actually in the room, but they've all got jobs to do. So there'd be some nurses and an anaesthetic doctor, a lab scientist, myself, theatre techs, there's a few people around. And the first thing we do is an ID process, which is really important to make sure that all the paperwork matches and And I actually check every single dish with the scientist as well and make sure that it's labelled correctly and the names on the dish and the ID numbers on the dish. We're finicky about that. So there's no way we're going to mess up whose eggs go to who in an IVF lab. And everything's also barcoded. So it's got this system called RI, which is basically double checking the humans and making sure no one makes a mistake. (laughs) So that all happens when you go into theatre. But then what happens as the patient is you go to sleep You're given an anesthetic that really what you remember is having a a little drip put in your hand and it's a concoction of medications to make you really deeply sleepy so that you're not aware of the procedure at all and you're not in any pain and you will not have any recollection of the procedure. You'll remember going to sleep and then the next thing from your memory is you'll be in recovery. So that's really what it's like as a patient. I've been through it myself and I can tell you that's what it's like. In terms of what happens when I'm in theatre, I do an ultrasound while you're sleeping and it's a transvaginal ultrasound. And what I'm doing is really trying to minimise the distance between the ultrasound probe and the ovary so that I'm squishing the ovary up against the top of the vagina 
And so the needle that I pass through the roof of the vagina into the ovary is in ultrasound vision at all times. And I take the little needle tip and I put it in each individual follicle and I aspirate out the fluid from the follicle. Eggs are actually microscopic. So when I'm doing the procedure, I'm not seeing your eggs. I'm seeing your follicles and I'm seeing the little tip of my needle and I'm seeing the fluid being sucked out of the follicle on the ultrasound screen as the follicle kind of shrinks around my needle tip. And I'm seeing that little fluid drip, drip, drip into a test tube. And that test tube then goes to my colleague, who's my partner in crime in the procedure, a scientist, an embryologist, and they search through that fluid with a microscope to find the eggs. So they're telling me, I'm hearing them verbally telling me in real time as they're finding eggs. And usually by the end of the procedure, they've told me how many eggs have been collected. It's not always every follicle that gives us an egg. There is operator variability in that. There's a bit of a learning curve with egg collection. You do have to know how to do it really well and to not miss follicles requires a bit of skill and dexterity. But in terms of eggs, not every follicle has an egg to give. Sometimes the eggs have degenerated within a follicle over a woman's lifetime. So there can be some follicles that are empty. And so we always, you know, would counsel a woman freezing eggs that not every follicle will give us an egg. We hope to get an egg from at least 60% of the follicles we see on ultrasound. Of the eggs we collect, not all the eggs will be mature or usable egg. It's not every egg that can make a baby. So we really only freeze eggs if we think they're high quality eggs that can make a baby. So the number that we find out from the egg collection is how many eggs were found. And then there'll be a revised number as to how many are actually frozen because the lab will only freeze eggs they think are in your best interest to freeze. And how many eggs would you hope would lead to, I guess, a healthy pregnancy later on? So that is 100% dependent on the age of the woman. Yeah. Okay. There's a really great study that I actually quote quite often to my patients by a guy called Goldman in America, where he analyzed the data as to how many eggs do you need to have X percentage chance of having a baby. Mm-hmm. And there's a really lovely graph in that paper that I use actually on my desktop all the time. If you are under 30, you are going to have actually a very reasonable chance of having a baby with 10 to 20 eggs in the freezer, like in the vicinity of about 70 to 80%. Mm -hmm. But if you're over 35, you're going to need 30 eggs to give you a similar chance. Mm -hmm. The older you are, the more eggs you need and the less certain, even with a higher number of eggs, that you'll be successful. Mm -hmm. So really, I guess more is more. The better outcomes come for women who freeze more eggs because we also have to remember that not every egg will come out of the freezer okay. Some of them might be lost to the process of freezing and warming. Even though the technology is terrific, from the egg's perspective, it's a trauma. So the egg has to be frozen, it has to be warmed, it has to survive, and then it has to act like a normal egg. And so we do lose some eggs to the process. In terms of what we see in nature, we're never going to beat nature. And what we see in nature is not every egg will fertilize and not every fertilized egg will make an embryo and not every embryo will make a baby. When you're under 30 and you make an embryo, its chance of making a baby is actually excellent in a good IVF lab. It's about 50-50. But when you're over 35, 
it's going to be, you know, closer to one in three or one in four embryos that can make a baby. So the older you are, the more eggs you need. Yeah. As a summary. (laughs) So once you have, I guess, your frozen eggs and you put them on ice, I guess, up until what age can you use those frozen eggs? It's a really interesting question because Mm -hmm. there's no legal answer. There's Mm -hmm. only guidelines for practice. So it hasn't been legally determined that there's an upper limit of a woman's age to carry a child. But in most IVF units in Australia, that upper limit is set more by internal regulation. It's usually 51, mm-hmm. okay, which was set arbitrarily, completely arbitrarily, because it's the average age a woman goes through menopause. Okay. Yeah. You can basically, if you've frozen them at 32, say, you could use those eggs theoretically up until 51. That's right. You could. Yeah. And your chances would be that of someone who's 30, 32, not someone who's 51. And you could also have a surrogate, I'm assuming, as well. Yeah, you could. Yeah. You could. Not always easy to get a surrogate. Yes. I think. Is that an issue here as well? I have two patients in my practice at the moment. I can't tell you, obviously, any details about them, but I have two patients in my practice who are using surrogacy currently. It's a minority of my practice because it is hard to have a surrogate uh, and you do need an altruistic person to Mm -hmm. carry a baby. Again, just like egg donation, surrogacy can't be commercially remunerated Mm -hmm. in Australia, whereas in other countries that's not the case. You can actually commission a surrogate and, and pay them for carrying your baby in places like, for example, America and other countries as well. Mm. But in Australia, that's not legal. So it is hard to come by, but there will always be someone who loves a particular couple or woman and will carry her baby for her. The other thing that I didn't mention before uh, when you asked me about, you know, are there other options once you run out of time with your own eggs, I didn't talk to you about embryos Mm -hmm. because you know, there are lots of families now, 8 million IVF babies worldwide, and there's lots of families that actually make embryos, fertilized egg and sperm that are in excess of their needs in terms of the number of children they want. So another pathway is actually to kind of adopt an embryo that's mm-hmm. been made by another family who are altruistically donating that embryo. And I do have quite a few patients in my practice who have required a donor egg who have actually accepted a donor embryo. So that's another option. I did watch a TV program with my mum about that where a couple donated to another couple. It was actually a really beautiful TV show. If someone is interested in egg freezing, where would they start? Like what kind of resources might they look towards before actually starting the process? Look, I think it's really important to do your research because egg freezing outcomes are different in different laboratories Mm -hmm. and you want to choose a lab that has amazing IVF outcomes. I work with Melbourne IVF as my laboratory and I choose to do that because I want the very best outcomes for my patients from the embryology lab and that's a really important part of the process. I personally believe that having a doctor look after you individually will affect the outcomes you get in IVF across the board, let alone egg freezing. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think that is the ideal model of care rather than a protocolized approach where it's kind of a, a bit of a systematized machine. Mm-hmm. And there are units around that do that, but that's not how I practice. Personally, I mean, in my personal practice as an IVF doctor, I don't think I would enjoy my job if I did that. I really love 
interacting with my patients and learning about them and, you know, having relationships, you know, that span years, helping them Mm -hmm. have their families. It's really meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really reassuring for something like egg freezing, particularly where it's a group of well women, this might be their first ever anesthetic, or it might be their first ever hospital admission. I think it's really reassuring to know your doctor and that they'll be there for you for your procedures and Mm -hmm. doing their best to get your best outcome. So I would encourage women to consider that the model of care where you have your own specialist and especially in, in an IVF unit with excellent success rate should be first and foremost as to where you choose to freeze your eggs. Mm -hmm. In terms of the process, it is quite invasive, but it is quite quick. And I find most women tolerate it extremely well. It's over before you know it. And while it's a big decision to freeze eggs, I've never had any single patient regret doing it. I think it's something that women feel gives them choice and gives them future options. I've had patients who've come back to use their eggs in various contexts. I've had patients who've come back with a partner. I've had patients who've decided to proceed with a donor. I've had patients who've gone off, met a partner, had a baby naturally, and then come back because they struggled to have more than one when they started a little bit later in life and their frozen eggs were a godsend. So there's so many different contexts. I've had women who've frozen their eggs, who've donated them to others because they didn't need them. Mm. And so there's so many beautiful potential outcomes from egg freezing. I think it's an amazing technology. I think we're blessed to live in a generation where it's possible because I think there are a lot of women, particularly who may have missed out because the technology wasn't there for them. And I think there are many women who unfortunately have had cycle after cycle of difficult failed IVF because they've been trying to have a baby with same age eggs at an age where their fertility is really low. Mm. So I I see egg freezing as a real revolutionary science. I don't think we should oversell it because particularly for women who try and freeze eggs a little bit later in life, it might not be a panacea. But for women who freeze eggs at a young age, outcomes that I have seen in my practice have been amazing. And I'm very pro the technology. Well, thank you so much, Raylia. It was a pleasure to speak to you today. So yeah, thank you. My greatest pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, Linda. We're back. Hi. Hi. So a couple of questions for you. So what is the process that you have to go uh, through before you freeze your eggs And actually, when are you going to start? Because I don't know that. I feel like this is going to be part two, so I don't want to cover. So basically, part two, I'm going to go from start to finish the the decision, what I did, like the weeks before the actual eggs are frozen, all the medications, everything is going to be covered off in part two. So subscribe to the podcast if you want to get that. (laughs) You're not going to want. You're not going to ask that. And just you know, one thing, please. I know you have to have shots. Do not ask me to do it's that. For the content, I, Linda. I, I already have. I already have our first Instagram <laughs> post planned out. It's going to be a reels, and you're going to be like trying to inject me. You have. Is to. it one it's, of those ones that you do if you've got diabetes and it's just a puncture, or is it an actual no. needle? It's, I think it's you have not to a pull puncture. the fat and put it in. Oh. And, yeah, you're doing oh. it. 
No. You have and, to, um, Linda. <laughs> I've been sort of researching a little bit what will go on with you because we've been living through your sister who's pregnant, crying at the drop of a hat with her hormones. <laughs> so I wonder if you are going to have any hormonal mood yes, swings. That'll be I interesting. Think so. I think so. We can talk about that on part two. And the other thing I was thinking is, you know, when I you were going through this and I started to wonder, I wonder if you could be a surrogate at my age. Yes. And, of course. <laughs> you did. I think you asked Raylia. I asked Raylia. And, of her. course, that is not recommended. And she did mention that when you get a bit old, you're, you know, you can have a heart attack. There's all yes. sorts of things. I had no idea. I thought I'd be Don't fine. Worry. I'm not going to ask you to be my surrogate. <laughs> You're off the hook. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us for part one. We'll be back for part two. Raylia also has a podcast. It's called Knocked Up. So go and check her podcast out. There's so much information on there on fertility. And we will see you next time for part two. See you next week. If you made it this far, I'm hoping that you enjoyed the podcast. If you could subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps other people find the podcast. Not that I'm desperate or anything. See you next week.